0: Good evening, everyone, and welcome to this LSE Literary Festival session sponsored by the Wellcome Trust on tacit knowledge in arts, science, and business. My name is Richard Bronk. I'm a visiting fellow in the European (laughs) Institute of the LSE, and I'll be chairing this session. Now, we hope to podcast this event, so it would be appreciated if you could make sure your phones are on silent. But please do feel free to tweet as much as you like on the suggested hashtag is LSE Litfest. Now, my first pleasure is to introduce our speakers tonight, and on my immediate right is Harry Collins. Harry is Distinguished Research Professor of Sociology and Director of the Centre for the Study of Knowledge, Expertise and Science at Cardiff University. A fellow of the British Academy, he is author of Tacit and Explicit Knowledge, published by University of Chicago Press. Fiona, on his right is um, trained initially as a concert violinist but then did a PhD and has written extensively on the philosophy of language and is now an acclaimed poet winner of numerous awards and author of a large number of books of poetry, philosophy and criticism Fiona is editor of poem and is professor of poetry at the University of Roehampton and finally Roger uh, Kneebone is trained originally as a trauma surgeon worked then as a GP for a while and is now an engagement fellow at the Wellcome Trust and a professor in the Department of Surgery and Medicine at Imperial College, London. He works on innovative training and simulation techniques for surgery. Now, the running order for this evening is that Harry and I will begin with a discussion designed to sketch out the concept of tacit knowledge for about 15 or 20 minutes, and then Roger and Fiona will each speak um, for about 10 to 12 minutes um, on their Uh, angle on the subject. And we'll then have a short discussion between the panellists leaving at least 20 minutes for Q&A with questions from you, the audience. And when this session ends at 7.30 you're warmly invited to a reception outside that has been kindly funded by our sponsor, the Wellcome Trust. And Harry, Fiona and I will also have books on sale uh, outside and we'll be happy to sign any as long as you buy them first. (laughs) And finally, at 8.15, Fiona will be giving a poetry reading in the Thai theatre, and I think there may be one or two seats left for that, if any of you are interested. So, Harry, let me start proceedings by asking you a few few questions. Um, Tacit knowledge is normally associated with practical know-how, such as knowing how to sing or how to ride a bicycle or whatever, and it's defined as knowledge that is not made explicit. That's the dictionary definition. But in your book, you point to two stronger senses of the, use of the name tacit knowledge, knowledge that cannot be made explicit or perhaps cannot even be explained. Can you perhaps start for us by unpacking these deeper senses, if you like, of tacit knowledge? Yeah, well, I, I probably... I didn't start with the dictionary definition, and
1: um, I think I've always been... found trouble thinking about tacit knowledge because sometimes it's used or it seems to me sometimes it's used to mean knowledge which just happens Mm -hmm. not to be made explicit and sometimes it's used to mean knowledge which can't be made explicit and there's plenty of room for confusion in the business of tacit knowledge and people like to like it they like it to be sort of mysterious you know this is something we know but kind of we don't know and you know philosophers love that so there are philosophers who say there can't be any such thing as tacit knowledge it's a contradiction in terms if it's knowledge it's knowledge and it can't be unknown and they go on like that <laughs> you know you can write books like that make, make a living in a university like that but it, it's you know the, the, way I, the I've written various things about tacit knowledge I'm a sociologist of science and what I did in the way back in the early 70s was to go and look at scientists doing experiments and one thing I discovered is that if you want to know how to repeat an experiment, you need to hang around with the person who's, who's done it first in order to pick up the skills. At that time, I did, I'd never heard of and I'd never heard of the term tacit knowledge, and I wrote a paper about this and the ref, a referee said, you're talking about tacit knowledge. So I thought, oh well, I'd better say tacit knowledge in the title of the paper Then in that case it seems I've been doing tacit knowledge all the time and the paper got written, and uh, it turned out to, to be uh, a paper that was, what, it was actually reprinted 25 years after it was first published, so that's quite pleasing and gets cited a lot. Well, then I had a graduate student uh, more, much more recently, and he was doing work connected with tacit knowledge, and he was asking me lots and lots of difficult questions about it which I couldn't always answer, so, so I said to him, look, I'll tell you what I'll do, I've written these several things about tacit knowledge, i will put it all together, it'll take me four weeks, I'll write a small book, and then you can have the book and all these problems you've got will be resolved. So I sat down to write it in four weeks and it actually took me two years of really hard slog. And one of the reasons is because, because of the fact that the term is used in so many different ways and I had to disentangle them, and Richard, you have just pointed out two of the different ways. Sometimes tacit knowledge, knowledge, which is not explicit. Sometimes tacit knowledge, which can't be made explicit. And according to my book...
0: <laughs> one sail outside.
1: Those two kinds of tacit knowledge do, exact, do exist, and I pull them apart.
0: And one of the, I think the most fascinating ideas in your book is that, for most of human history, there was no explicit knowledge. That the t- in that sense, the tacit was the ordinary type of knowledge. It's only, I think you argue, the printing press and the computer that's made the explicit seem the norm and the tacit seem strange. Perhaps even in the more recent past, most knowledge was practical know-how learned by practice and experience, not formal instruction, and most of it rarely articulated. Can you say a bit more about this and why you think that in many ways explicit knowledge should still be seen as the more problematic notion?
1: Yeah, I mean, this was a, the discovery that came out of writing the book, and it's why it took me two years instead of four weeks, because when I sat down to write about tacit knowledge, and I suppose you, it makes perfect sense. Um, I couldn't, as it were, make the words lie comfortably on the page, without first understanding what explicit knowledge was. You know, I wanted to write about tacit knowledge, Well, what is tacit knowledge? Now, trying to looking for a definition, I decided well, it has to be knowledge which isn't explicit. Well, what's explicit knowledge? And in the history of the notion of the term tacit knowledge, it's always been the other way around. You know, explicit knowledge, well, that's the stuff we know. And tacit knowledge is a mysterious thing. I mean, the inventor of the term, Michael Polanyi, was a bit of a mystery monger about it. You know, he liked to say it's mysterious and it's all tied up with instincts and knowing things in advance before you can prove them and things like this. And it turned out that the really hard part of the book was trying to work out what explicit knowledge was. And I still don't think I understand it, hardly at all. But I got just enough of an understanding to be able to write the second part of the book about tacit knowledge. So the first part, of the first three chapters are about explicit knowledge. The second three chapters are about tacit knowledge. It's the second three chapters which are really the meat of the thing. OK, but the first three chapters on explicit knowledge are setting the problem up so that it can actually make sense of the notion of tacit knowledge later. And yeah, the longer I go on thinking about it, and I've written s- things subsequent to the book, sort of introductions to the book. And let me just say this isn't advertising because I get no money out of this. But there's this journal called Philosophia Scientiae, which is a philosophy of science published out of the University of Nancy. And there's a discussion of the book in here with lots of critical commentaries and a new introduction to it by me and so on. It's... Uh, published in 2013, volume 17, number 3, uh, if anybody wants it. And in that book, I, in, that, in, the, in the new introduction to it, I slowly begin to realise how difficult this notion of explicit knowledge is. Think about it as a physicist. Okay, Let's, let me try a little experiment here and now. Richard, raise your hand. Now look what's happened. I've made some movements with my mouth. Some, this has turned into some strange air vibration. That's gone into his ear, I presume, anyway. And it's caused (coughs) him to do something. Now, think of it... Think of the weird physical causation. Some vibrations in the air, not particularly careful vibrations in the air, have caused him to... have caused a completely separate kind of physical thing to happen. The more you think about it, the weirder that is. And... um, So what I say in this new introduction is that you remember uh, uh, 2001 A Space Odyssey that great black obelisk that comes down and turns humans into tool users well really we need to visualise the beginning of explicit knowledge in that kind of way some obelisk came down and gave us this ability to produce these peculiar little ill formed vibrations which have the most remarkable and disparate causal effects on the material world. You know, explicit knowledge is really weird. And what I say in the book is, if you think about it a lot, there wasn't any explicit knowledge for most of the history of the world. Trees grew, things crawled out of the slime, animals do things without knowing that. You know, most of the time, most of the creatures in the world are doing things without being able to tell what they are. And it's, it's kind of strange that we think it's the Tacit knowledge, which is mysterious, and being able to tell what you're doing is not mysterious. I think it should be the other way around. It's very, very recent, and I think it must be something to do with computers in the 50s that made everybody think the natural way of knowing something was being able to tell it, and so tacit knowledge seemed mysterious, but I think it should be the other way around.
0: And maybe the sort of enlightenment myth as well of explicit knowledge that... Now, you, you distinguish, I think, in your book three different types of tacit knowledge. Um, a weak form, where knowledge is just de facto not made explicit, which is, as you say, in a sense, the least interesting kind. Perhaps because of the costs and complexity of making it explicit, or the failure to appreciate someone else's need to know, or whatever. And then secondly, there's this much more important medium form of tacit knowledge, which you call somatic tacit knowledge. And that's practical know how that's somehow semi hardwired into our muscles or even or, or our brains. And and finally, what for you I think is the most interesting, this strong form that you call collective tacit knowledge, knowledge that's embedded in social conventions, the social frames and assumptions that we unconsciously internalise. Can you briefly explain why you think it's so important to distinguish between these three types of tacit knowledge?
1: Well, the question that's asked in every chapter of the book is, is, can this kind of tacit knowledge be made explicit? And the point about the third kind, the collective tacit knowledge, the strong tacit knowledge, is that I don't think it can be made explicit, or at least we can foresee no way of making it explicit. It's very important not to get sucked into making prophecies. I don't want to make a prophecy... But what I want to say is, we can't imagine how to make this third form of tacit knowledge explicit. And we, we can't think—I'm pretty sure—we're not going to get there by gradual increments from what we know. I mean, somebody someday may get the breakthrough, but you know, we we can't foresee it at the moment. Whereas the other two kinds of tacit knowledge. Uh, the first one is relational tacit knowledge and the second is somatic tacit knowledge I think can be made explicit but in different ways interestingly though the relational tacit knowledge is kind of the simplest and most trivial form uh, you know it includes keeping secrets so nobody knows so, so the other person doesn't know what you know although they can still find it out in the ways that you normally find out tacit knowledge which is by normally have it transmitted to you as it were by hanging around with the people you might get to uncover their secrets. And it includes things like coded knowledge and knowledge that you can't transmit because you don't know the other person needs to know it, or knowledge that you can't transmit because though you could explicate it, you don't know that you know it yourself because you haven't been reflective enough. That category was actually the hardest category to write about because it's so simple and tacit knowledge seems so mysterious and complicated that before... I felt that I could, have a, ha, could map out the terrain of tacit knowledge. I had to discover this relational tacit knowledge, which is somehow kind of too trivial to have, to have been noticed before when people were talking about tacit knowledge. And it got mixed up with all the other stuff, and that's why the other stuff was so difficult to understand. The somatic tacit knowledge is, is what you get coded in your body and brain. The f- most famous example in all the tacit knowledge literature is learning to ride a bicycle, which Polanyi said, you know, you, you can't learn to ride a bicycle through explicit instructions, you, you can't be told how to move the handlebars and so on and so forth. And this has been the classic example, and I use it a lot to show just how confounded the tacit knowledge business is, because though Polanyi says you can't make it explicit, in fact, a few pages later, he gives a formula <laughs> for riding a bicycle, okay, a physical formula. And then I argue, as follows, that in fact, you could, u- you could use that formula... Supposing you were riding a bicycle on a very small asteroid such that the force of gravity was very, very, very slight and the bicycle fell, to- fell over very, very, very slowly. Well, you could get on that bike with a protractor and some other geometrical instruments and your instruction book for Polanyi, measure where the bike was going, look up how far you need to turn the handlebars, turn, be a like, bit like assembling flat-pack furniture.
2: You
1: <laughs> and, you know, then you see that the tacitness of that knowledge has solely to do with the speed of our brains and the nature of our organisms. You, know, you, could, you can do the same thought experiment just by speeding up the brain a million times when we'd be able to do the same thing. So a lot of the tacit knowledge business is confounded because it mixes up what's tacit in virtue of the fact that we humans have brains that work at the speed they do and we're light, we're made of the substances they are with other more fundamental reasons things being more tacit. And the more fundamental reason, the the one kind of tacit knowledge which I think you can't make explicit, is what I call collective tacit knowledge. And that's the tacit knowledge which belongs to the collectivity rather than the individual. So for instance, right now I am using rules for forming the sentences that I'm speaking and I do not know them. And I don't think they can ever be made fully explicit one of the simple and the simple reasons one of the simple reasons for seeing this is that language changes all the time and uh, in fact the changes are not in anyone's control the changes and therefore the language is the property of the social collectivity in which the language is embedded and you cannot extract the rules from the social collectivity and you can't predict where it's going to go so for those of the philosophers in the room who know about Searle's chinese room which attempts to capture the whole of Chinese <coughs> in a formula, it's not really capturing Chinese, it's ca- capturing a frozen moment of Chinese. And if the Chinese room isn't continually updated, its language will soon become
0: archaic. Fascinating. Now, when, when thinking about the somatic knowledge, though, um, you said a minute ago that you think that, in a sense, <coughs> it's only that our brains can't cope with... The explicit form, the, the, the formula, if you like, fast enough, to, and that's why it is tacit, it needs to be tacit. But I wonder if there's something else going on here, this semi-automatic muscular mental knowledge, for example, then, of how to ride a bicycle, how to drive a car, how to touch type, I think is a, is a very good example of, of this kind of somatic knowledge, or playing a musical instrument. It strikes me that there are two other things going on here. One is that this know-how is usually unconsciously used. Indeed, if you consciously focus on the task in hand, it usually messes it up. If you start to think about where the the letters are on the keyboard, you you usually start to type incorrectly, or at least least I do. Um, And the other thing is that this kind of know-how is very difficult to conceptualise linguistically. And I wonder if this is one of the things we mean about tacit knowledge, is that it's difficult to put into words. So it may be possible to do it in a formula that a, a computer can understand or a mathematician can understand, but it's very difficult to conceptualise it. And I think this is partly what Harani meant when he said an unbridled lucidity can destroy our understanding of complex matters. So, so how important do you think these unconscious and non-conceptual aspects of this somatic tacit knowledge are? Well, let me deal with the second one
1: first, because I want to deal with it quickly
0: and get yeah. rid of it before turning on to
1: the unconscious. Um, I actually think... I mean, one of the four definitions... After thinking and thinking and thinking for two years about the meaning of explicit knowledge, meaning of explicit, one of the definitions I came up with, it, uh, one of four definitions, was being able to express something in a scientific formula. When we've done that... And this is just my observation as a sociologist. When we've done that, or when we've built a machine out of mechanical parts that will do something that a human being can do... We think we understand it. We think we have, in some sense, made the knowledge explicit. So I'm not going to pick up on your formula stuff. I think expressing something in a formula is making it explicit. But let me get back to the conscious and unconscious business because this is something I've struggled with for a very, very long time. I mean, again, for the philosophers, uh, Bert Dreyfus, a uh, famous philosopher at Berkeley who wrote a, a brilliant and uh, pioneering book about things that computers couldn't do um, and he's a I wouldn't say a colleague of mine well I think of him as a colleague but I'm not sure he thinks of me as his colleague but um, you know I've been fighting with him for years because he has a did you have this in mind the five stage model of, of, of uh, acquiring a skill in which the knowledge becomes less and less conscious in stages and it, in many of the examples he uses it's right But, first of all, it doesn't apply to all skills. I mean, try try doing this. You can try this experiment right here and now. Say this fast. I'm not a pheasant plucker, I'm a pheasant plucker's son. And I'm only plucking pheasant till the pheasant pluckers come. Now, try letting that go into your unconscious and see what happens to it. Okay? So there are lots of skills that actually require self-conscious attention. I would think something like synchronised swimming is one of them. You know? And I think various other things that need a lot of proprioception would be candidates for the sorts of skills that don't get more unconscious. Then there are skills where in fact the five stages, Dreyfus's five stages don't apply. Let's take, bice- learning to, let's take humans learning to ride a bicycle. One of the early Dreyfus stages is following instructions. Well, actually, there's no such stage in learning to ride a bicycle. In fact, it's all compressed in learning to ride a bicycle. You spend a time falling off, and then you spend a time staying on. So there aren't five stages. There's two. Okay, and you'll find something similar with touch typing. Actually, there aren't all those stages. Um, so it's just. But but I think you know psychologists are in love with the unconscious, and philosophers are also in love with the unconscious. But I think it's a damn nuisance. <laughs> um, and in fact, I think you get it Let's take Dreyfus's, one of Dreyfuss' famous examples, learning to drive a car, where I think his description of how you learn to drive goes through the five stages quite correctly. But notice when you learn to drive a car, let's just take a typical description of learning to drive a car, the commute to work, which everybody always talks about. And what happens on the commute to work? Well, you're driving along, you're thinking about something completely different and you're driving your car unconsciously, okay? And then suddenly you, you wake up and you notice, you're halfway drunk and say, oh, my goodness, I haven't noticed all those streets and traffic lights that I've just passed. I've been doing it without thinking. Was that dangerous? No, of course it wasn't, because you were doing it unconsciously. But now you're doing it consciously. The skill hasn't changed. It's still the same skill. Yeah? So if you determine, if you you're going to make the crucial criterion of what kind of skill it is whether you're doing it consciously or unconsciously then the skills you're doing are going to be continually changing like a kaleidoscope sometimes they're conscious sometimes they're not and that's just normal way skills go so I think you you know <coughs> conscious and unconscious is on an orthogonal dimension to tacit and non-ta and explicit and shouldn't be thought of as being on the same dimension because I think you get mixed up
0: great now if if if, t- if this kind of shared practical know-how, um, unconsciously used or otherwise, is, is, is important kind of knowledge, is, is tacit knowledge, do animals have this sort of knowledge? I mean, for example, is, is ant know-how, which is deeply social, follows all sorts of rules as far as we can tell, is that knowledge, is it tacit knowledge? And when the Arctic tern knows how to navigate right around the world and find its nesting place on... One ice sheet with no features—is that tacit knowledge?
1: Well, the first mistake—forgive me, Richard, but in a sort of patronising way—but <laughs> the first mistake is to say that ants have social knowledge. They, everybody says this, and everybody says bees are social animals, and so on. But they're not. Okay, they're actually following sets of fairly well describable rules. Uh, like, it's like a network of computers, which also aren't social, but are following sets of rules if you want to use the word social properly, you have to think about creatures like humans or if they' you know if chimps and dolphins use language, we can include them as well. But language using creatures are social, and the nature of the social is has this quality that you can't explicate the rules. You know, if I ask you for some of the social things you do, I ask any of you when you walked here today, how did you know how close to walk to the other people on the pavement? And you'll know that in the tube it's one distance, and on an empty pavement it's another. On a complete, another completely empty pavement, you better not cross the road and walk by next to an attractive person of the opposite sex. Or so cause look a bit funny. You know all this, okay? But you can't pre- e- explicate it all. It's not like the knowledge of ants and bees. You can tell this. I mean, people have have people have entered the bee world and reproduced the bee dance and got the bees to go where they want them to go. So we can understand the language of bees just by observing bees without being able to... S- just by observing bees. Whereas, you know, if you want to know human languages with all it fluently <coughs> so that you know all their nuances, you've got to go and live with them. That's how you get the understanding of the language. So it's something really rather different. So birds or whatever might have somatic tacit knowledge, but they wouldn't have... Somatic tacit knowledge. Now, the, but the first part of your question is, do cats and birds and yeah. other creatures yeah. and so on have tacit knowledge? And the answer I have to give, I think, is yes. I'm going to say they do have tacit knowledge, and I say that in the spirit that I said, ever since the, everything crawled, anything crawled out of the slime, things have been doing it tacitly. But it's a, it gets a bit messy here because I also want to say that birds and cats and creatures like this are not knowers. The only creatures that are knowers are knowers. That's not in, as in <laughs> knowers are, but in K-N-O-W-E-E-R-S. The only creatures that are knowers are creatures that are capable of reflecting on their knowledge with a view for example to making it explicit creatures that might try to make their knowledge explicit by daubing cave paintings or inventing writing or things like this so you can see or you could use other examples you can see the non-knowingness of say a dog although it has lots of tacit knowledge in virtue of the fact that there will never be a vegetarian dog by choice it might be vegetarian by its owner's choice won't be vegetarian by the dog's choice we aren't going to have a lot of chihuahuas sitting around and saying isn't it time we stopped eating other creatures and started eating only cereals it's not going to happen because they're not capable of reflecting on their knowledge so yes animals and so on have tacit knowledge but they're not knowers <laughs> I want to preserve the, the term
0: knower for
1: humans so or languages they don't know
0: that something yeah Can I just finally probe you on one thing which comes up a lot in your book which is about how computers change the way we think about about tacit knowledge I mean we talked a little bit already about how um, computers can help us codify practical know-how digitally I think Roger might be going to talk a little bit about how they enable you to learn things by way of simulated practice Um, but... comes across very clearly in your book that you think that computers can't help us ultimately to learn the hidden frames and social clues that are central to what you call collective tacit knowledge. And I I just wonder whether, and I have a lot of sympathy with you there, but I just wonder if this isn't a bit of a conceit of the middle-aged that social learning can't happen by Skype or in online interest groups and that it has to be face-to-face, with all sorts of interesting people like ourselves. Yeah, well, <laughs> thank you for calling me middle-aged. I mean, that might be conceited to <laughs> be very old,
1: actually. But it's also possibly a conceit of the, uh, of the university teaching class, uh, since uh, it's in our interests not to have people believe that all education can be done by distance learning. Uh, since we want universities to continue to exist, we don 't want our lectures recorded, and then us told to go home. Please. Thank you very much uh, so my my but let, let's let 's hope it 's not just a conceit i'm a sociologist of knowledge, so i 'm very sensitive to these kind of causes inflicting on on what we think about this and that but um, I do think there's more to it than that i think I think you all know that you can 't learn French without going to live in France and immersing yourself in the to and fro of the spoken language, the oral culture. And that's what education is about. (laughs) It's immersing yourself in the oral culture of sets of specialist experts. And it can't be done by distance learning. And people know this. I mean, you kind of know it even if you're not prepared to say it. I always tell this anecdote about... I've spent decades studying a field of physics called gravitational wave detection physics about 800-strong field nowadays, and it has conferences all over the world. And I was in a conference in uh, Perth where gravitational wave physics was being discussed. And the project director of the Big American Project uh, flew from California about a 24-hour flight to Perth, spent a day with the other people in the community, and then flew back that evening without spending a night in Australia because he knew he had to be there to make the face-to-face contact if he wanted the social material, the social intersection of what he knew and what they knew, to get together. People know this. Even though we have Skype and everything else, we still have people flying all over the place to meetings. And it's not because meetings are particularly enjoyable. After you've done enough of them, they they cease to be enjoyable. Um, And, uh, yeah, once you've got to know the people that you want to communicate and work with, then, in fact, I think all the computerised stuff is really useful and can save you a lot of time and a lot of travel, but it doesn't replace it. You know, there's got to be a lot of it in there as well.
0: Well, thank you very much, Harry. Now, Roger, do you want to go next? Yes, yes, Okay. Okay. Thank you. Uh, I'm going to uh, do
3: something slightly different. I'm going to stand up here <coughs> and um, suggest that for um, the next 10 or 12 minutes, we, we can turn the lights down at, or off at, down here. Uh, and um, can I need to do something to. Uh, <coughs> yes, other, other,
0: other way, Richard. Thank you. This is tacit knowledge. <laughs>
3: Uh, yes, so, uh, thank you. Um, I'm Roger Lee Bone, a uh, professor at Imperial College and a Wellcome Trust engagement fellow. Uh, and I'm going to talk to you about the world that I'm, uh, a world that I'm familiar with, which is the world of surgery, which I think is very full of tacit knowledge uh, and embodied knowledge uh, of all sorts of kinds um, that start to emerge when you begin to look at it. So I'm going to start off with a... Brief health warning, those of you who have are of a nervous disposition um, might like to avert your gaze with one or two of the pictures that I'm going to show you. They're not particularly grisly, but I, I'm just warning you that I'm going to show you some pictures of surgery because the topic of my talk is surgery. So, for those of you who are not familiar with the operating theatre, um, this is the kind of thing you might see. If you go into an operation, you've got, ooh, um, you've got a group of people here... Um, And over here, there's a whole lot of stuff, a whole lot of kit. Um, We've got a surgeon there, we've got an assistant surgeon, we've got a scrub nurse, um, and we've got all these instruments and bits of uh, uh, machinery and things. And they are working together to do something that no single one of them could do on their own. From a different point of view, um, we see the surgeon, we see an assistant holding this thing here, which is a retractor to hold bits out of the way. We've got various people in the picture and who who, who we see and what their disposition is depends on the point of view of the viewer. We're seeing a different picture if we stand in one part of the operating theatre from another and whichever way we look at it, it is highly complex. So we've got the sense of people focusing on something that isn't particularly easy to see but we've got a series of bodies working together around doing work on another body, on the patient's body. It's very highly coordinated, it's very beautiful if you watch the hands of three or four people around the operating table. They're coordinated in a way that, that is very hard to describe. It's, it's the kind of thing we've been hearing about from, from Harry already. Um, and uh, as, as well as those, those specific instances, those manoeuvres, those manipulations, you get, I think, a very strong sense of what the operation is all about, which you also get from other ways of looking at things. So here this is by Barbara Hepworth in 1948. A series of very beautiful I think pictures which which I think distill her ability to capture the essence of what is going on in an operating theatre. And to me this is about this is about collective action. This is a social thing. This is about people working together with a common purpose. And to me what comes over very strongly here is the is the focus the um, the, the sense of calmness and, and, and people working as one. But interestingly, you can't see anything at all about the operation itself. You can't see the patient, you can't see anybody holding any instruments or doing anything. You couldn't tell what the procedure was. So I'm going to look at three different examples of how people, of different kinds of surgery, and consider how one might gain that that knowledge or those kinds of knowledge that allow one to, to operate in every sense successfully as part of a group. First one's open surgery. So when you go to medical student, medical school um, first thing you do is uh, well, uh, if you are interested in the world of surgery and this is, this is the kind of thing that you're going to be dealing with after all um, where you've got somebody who's injured and you've got people who are working together to to do stuff with somebody's body inside. When you first go to medical school, you find it isn't like that at all. First thing that happens is that they show you pictures of anatomy. Simplified pictures like this. Which in a sense are very helpful, because they tell you things you really need to know. They tell you that the liver is up there on the right, and that the stomach is up there in the middle, and the spleen's on the left, and all those things come in very handy eventually when you come to do it. But this kind of picture gives you one impression of what the inside of the body's like... Which, which isn't really very accurate. Now, they then start to... They, they, they expand that, and they give you pictures like this, which are highly, highly detailed. But they're still symbolic representations. But in a sense, they're misleading, because here we can see uh, a whole lot of arteries, and they're, they're red, and there are some nerves there, and they're yellow. And although they've all been cut off, they've all got, they've all got little names which you can't read from there, but it doesn't matter at all... But it gives you the sense that, that if you open anybody up, you will find something exactly there that's called exactly that. <laughs> um, and then you go, sometimes at any rate, and I certainly did, into the dissecting room to, to cut up dead bodies, cadavers. And then you find it looks completely different, because it's, it's all grey, and... Uh, And when you get there, you find... This is a picture of a a dissected cadaver. You find there are some things that you could probably recognise. That's kidney-shaped, reasonable to um, infer that it's a kidney, which it is. But this thing here, which says IVC, um, is actually the largest vein in the whole of the body. It's the vein that takes all the blood from the legs back up into the heart, and believe you me, if you make a hole in that, or somebody else has made a hole in it, you know all about it very, very quickly, because the whole of the patient's abdominal cavity fills up with blood that you can hear as it gushes out, and you get absolutely no sense at all from seeing this great stringy thing, what that is. So, when you start to put that into effect, when you start to look at what surgeons actually do starts to look different. Here's a very brief clip of an experienced surgeon, very experienced surgeon, teaching a novice. they called
4: the right. mons, yeah. So that's the cystic and once you get the gallbladder developed coming away from the liver there. Ah,
1: oh, yeah, there you go, we'll make the for plane then. Uh, and there's this reassuring thing where you put a finger, in. Try, just try that, just use a finger and then feel the... Uh... So he
3: says there's this, there's this reassuring thing where you just put a finger in there and feel the... Uh...
4: <laughs> <laughs>
3: and that's what he's conveying, is what it feels like to put his finger in there and feel the... Uh... Um, and that's what, he's, that's what the person who's learning from him is having to learn as well. And he's absolutely right, that is exactly what you do. But it's something that defies description. You cannot write it down in words. You have to have your finger in there and you have to feel the uh, yourself before you know what he's doing. <laughs> um, the next one I want to show you is keyhole surgery, rather different. Um, keyhole surgery, instead of people gathered around uh, a hole in somebody's tummy and seeing their insides and pulling them out, um, people are all watching a screen. It's a peculiar environment, the light is strange, hence the peculiar colours, Um, and you've got people who are not looking at one another, it's a different kind of social arrangement, Um, and people are all looking at a screen. There is not that same kind of choreography of hands that we saw in open surgery, but there's an equivalent, where you have people working closely together to do things in a highly coordinated way. But one of the interesting things about this... Is that the view is very different again, because you're seeing things through a camera and it's all magnified. You see something like this, and when you see something like this, it's not like anything you've ever heard of. It's not certainly not like anything you saw in the dissecting room or the open operations, because it's all full of stuff, and you've got to make sense of what is just the the, the sort of packing. Um, that you get inside the body that nobody gives a name to because it's all over the place and it's not named ever. And the really important things, like the kidney, or that big vein I told you about, which you really, really want to know about before you go too far and make a home in it. And so how you make sense of this kind of thing, again, is not explained in any textbook. Uh, and nor is the difference between that and that. And then the final example is the way things are going now even more, where instead of opening people up like that, we very often... Um, do uh, an operation that involves putting a, a, a wire, a wiggly wire, into one part of the body as, uh, for instance, the, an artery in the groin and then feeding it up to a completely different part of the body. It might be the brain or the heart or, as in this case here, um, a uh, blood vessel. And if you look at the top right of the picture, you can see a black wormy thing coming down which is going through um, an artery. Most of the artery you can't see and then an uncoiling spiral is being put into position to stop some blood coming out where it shouldn't be coming out. So we've got a completely different way of looking at the body, different relationship with the body, mediated through X-rays, through scans, and doing things somewhere remote from where the action appears to be happening. So I want to just finish with a couple of moments talking about the social practices of surgery, because I think these are crucial. Um, and I'm going to describe to you some work that we've done recently in using simulation to reenact uh, ways of doing that, have now becoming, uh, that are now on the verge of extinction. That operation I showed you uh, at the very beginning, you put your finger in and, and feel the... Uh, was taking out a gallbladder through open surgery. But that doesn't happen anymore, ever, hardly. It's all done by keyhole surgery. So I wanted to capture the social practices in those days before this big change. So on the left is a a, a very distinguished professor of surgery, Harold Ellis, now 86. Top right, professor of anaesthesia, Stanley Feldman, also 86. Uh, Bottom right, Mary Neeland, much younger but still part of the team who used to work together for decades at the the, uh, Westminster Hospital. And we got them together in the Science Museum's uh, uh, replica operating theatre, which has been there for 33 years, 34 now, um, to show what heart surgery used to be like in 1980. The museum allowed us to take away a whole load of that kit and bring together our elderly team with equipment from the time to explore what it was like to do an operation that they don't do anymore. And so here's a glimpse of them starting. So I should say this is not a real patient. Um, this is a, it's a, a pig's liver and gallbladder inside a silicon model. Um, and we're seeing and over here uh, and in this we're seeing the professor of surgery he's there and we're seeing his <laughs> scrub nurse there his, his theatre sister and I want you to watch what happens in that space in the next few seconds
1: the artery is running with it in man well, she doesn't seem to be paying
3: any attention at all to mankind, what's
1: going on. men and women the artery runs separate from it but here you can see i just have a scissor
3: so he holds out his hand She's already got ready the instrument that she knows he's going to need. She puts it in his hand, he pulls back his hand. And if you look at the tape slowly, then, but only then does he say, scissors please, sister, after he's already got them. So there's a disconnection between between the actions and the words. So a lot of embodied practices are taking place at a different level from people's um, need to articulate what's going on. And when we played this video back to these people, they had no idea um, that any of that was happening, it was just completely, um, completely below the radar. So I just want to finish with a, a, a thought picking up what Richard was saying about touch typing and, and, and what might be the effects of, of dissecting and unpacking things that have become completely automatic, uh, because I hope that's something we can pick up with, with the, the other members of the group. And it's Mrs Edmund, Edmund Craster, who I think put it beautifully... Um, with her zoological perspective in 1871, and she says, the centipede was happy quite until a toad in fun said, pray which leg comes after which, which worked her mind to such a pitch, she lay distracted in the ditch, considering how to (laughs) run. And so I think there's a danger that we may turn our, that we may turn into centipedes lying helplessly in the ditch, waving our legs in the air, having suddenly become unable to do something that we are actually completely expert in, but not knowing how we do it. So, um, I've tried to give you a bit of a sense of what, what embodied practice and tacit knowledge might, might look like in the operating theatre, a, a, a world that most people don't normally see, because I think it brings into play a lot of the things that we've already heard about, and I'm sure some of the things that we're going to pick up in the rest of the discussion. Thank you.
0: Discussion. Thank you very much Roger and now um, Fiona will talk about something rather different, tacit knowledge in poetry and maybe even music
5: Thank you
6: Emily Dickinson said that uh, poets should tell the whole truth but tell it slant so I wanted to think a bit about tacit experience and complicit knowledge And I want to start by saying that I suspect almost no one except scholars has a problem with the notions of non-verbal forms or enactments of knowledge. I suspect that scholarship is susceptible to a false hierarchical distinction between the verbal and the non-verbal. Indeed, this seems to me almost necessarily the case because scholarship is the pursuit of particular forms of verbal knowledge and regards that which has difficulty being brought into its terms as beyond the reach of its inquiry as not yet constituted as knowledge, as not having passed a particular test of reality. I remember from my own long-ago PhD the terrific summary by Gemma Karadi-Fumar of this totalizing tendency, which in fact is present in all discourses from New Age websites to classical ballet by way of poetry wars. She says, any knowledge that is sufficiently and suitably expressed, deployed, has a progressive tendency to establish itself as the only knowledge there is. And any discourse initiated outside the dominant body of knowledge turns out to be so very difficult to think and articulate that it almost seems unheard of simply because it's unhearable, which makes me think about Eliot's definition of poetry as raids on the inarticulate. But it's not only in my own daily life as a poet, that, but that of my neighbours in Colesville that is dominated by nonverbal ways of going on. So let me ask you to picture last Monday afternoon... My next-door neighbour, who's a retired gamekeeper, is cleaning his guns before storing them away. It's the end of the shooting season. His wife hangs out the washing. Up the hill, young Barry is in his bobcat, cleaning out a gully. Duncan, impecunious part-time artist, is painting the architrave in Home Farm main bedroom. His partner, Polly, is at her computer, drawing up the garden she's designed for a client in the ward market gardens Sonia, Will and two woofers are clearing and tilling soil in the greenhouses while two electricians are at work on the refurbishment of number four in the bottom yard Keith is finishing up a new window frame while over at the apple store Paul is taking another batch of his eponymous pies out of the industrial range I could go on but you get my point all these people are going deliberatively about their daily business there's no mystery or magic to this No group mind or spooky prelapsarian intelligence. None of them is mentally paraphrasing what they're doing as they do it, but most all are using conscious mental skills of judgment and patience, every bit as much as, for example, (coughs) dexterity or stamina. And this is no pastoral prerogative, as Harry was saying. Here today we're surrounded by people hurrying up pavements without bumping into each other, and some wearing headphones who do putting on the tea, making skinny lattes, standing on scaffolding to repoint frontages, doing U-turns in black cabs, frying eggs in sandwich bars, making beds and cleaning under desks. The majority of the world makes its way through the world with highly evolved non-verbal ways of going on. I keep using the term non-verbal rather than tacit because most of these ways of going on can be and are taught through a paraphrase that's either verbal or non-verbal This knowledge doesn't seem to me to be silent or unspoken. I spent roughly 20 years mastering one such skill. In my first life I was a violinist, and I can assure you that the process was hardly ever silent. There was physical demonstration, teacher moving his own body or moving mine in a particular way. There was oral demonstration, when music was played or sung. There were also verbal instructions, put my emphasis on the bottom C, don't hold your bow arm so high. These did not work in a different way from the nonverbal. The difference between putting your hand on the student's elbow to lower it and saying, lower your elbow, is instrumental, not qualitative. So is the difference between demonstrating the emphasis on the bottom C and asking for it. These differences may produce too much or too little physical intimacy, they may be inspiring or be inhibiting, but they give the student the same playing information. Music I found is prelapsarian in one particular way. Everyone in the profession at least can hear the same things. Everyone knows who can play and what's special about their playing, its charisma or its fluency. This relationship to the truth of a public, though specialist knowledge, is among other things, democratic, nonverbal, and learnt. but it's not a set of facts that are being learnt, of course, but a set of skills in other words this open knowledge is not directly susceptible to denotation, This does not mean it's tacit. Like a student's knowledge about their own playing, it can be conveyed in discussion, with examples being reproduced or named, as well as being developed through practice. I even venture to suggest it is extended through discussion, that is, knowledge is co-created by activity and discussion of that activity. And here come two key tropes in non-verbal knowledge at least within my experience both have to do with a resistance to or an avoidance of reasoning one is that practice the other sits within that phrase conveyed in discussion this is communication that shows not tells in the cliche of the creative writing workshop examples whether identified or performed are not definitions and much of the talk in a musical context is evocative even metaphorical not something confined to musicians. Think of the language of wine-tasters or art critics. But that evocation or metaphor isn't riffing for the sake of it. It's a kind of synesthetic currency which has been developed in the way of going on that is classical music. I'm talking here about words like silky, breathy, limpid, for example. And practice is a way of learning that's had a bad press from light bulb jokes how many primary teachers does it take to change a light bulb I don't know but let's find out by trying to contemporary reactions to rote learning what you don't understand is only learnt goes the objection as so much patter understand here as usual means not know how to use but be able to explicate using denotation times tables in this argument don't allow children to see how pattern forms in number this is true But the same tables have helped many a carpenter calculate how much timber, or dressmaker, how much fabric they need. Practice, doing, including use, I want to suggest, is a particular kind of knowledge. It's a knowledge constituted in the same way as a Wittgensteinian language game. A times table, in this way of knowing, means the ways it is used, and not exclusively just a set of arithmetical truths. Doing is one of the ways human learns all sorts of basic skills, of course, like walking and talking, and not only in infancy, it's how we relearn after catastrophic brain injury, for example. It's also one of the ways in which animals learn, although here it gets a special name, Pavlovian response. Anyone who spent some time in close quarters with domestic animals will know about the roar of the morning kettle that means the cat is about to get fed, or how if I disappear in the car at evening, it means I will return with my partner, whom the dog adores. Of course, neither creature has something like words in which they enshrine this knowledge, but then, neither do I enshrine it that way. The kettle means time to wake up for me, too. Walking to the house alone at night feels wrong. Incidentally, my suspicion is that all this counts as knowledge because it's transferable. Dog and cat may be unable to articulate it in ways we recognise, but can and do convey, by example, to their peers... What to do. But here comes another difficulty. Surely information that can be transferred can be tacit only contingently, not necessarily. That world we cannot speak is surely not knowledge, but only non transferable experience. I'm thinking here of the old impersonal anxiety about colour. How can I ever know that your experience of colour is the same as mine, my blue, like my green is, even if I'm not colour blind, and I'm not? necessarily tacit. I'm sorry to return to Wittgenstein, but all this reminds me of his argument against the possibility of a private language. We can't use words unless they are stabilized, triangulated by at least one other user. Because otherwise how do we know whether they have, as it were, stayed where we put them? Knowledge, it seems to me, is also a way of going on, a practice And I would argue that it cannot be stabilised as a consistent, identifiable way unless it too can be triangulated by sharing. In other words, unless it is transferable to return to practice. I suspect there's another way in which this is a key model of the non-denotative. It's a way of going on which is broad enough to include what is conscious as well as what isn't. Not everything that is non-verbal is unconscious, even temporarily. When I play a piece from memory, I'm concentrating very hard in a unified, conscious way. But the thoughts I have don't take the form of words, but a musical form. Often, for example, they are the tune. Poetry also has a tune, of course. In formal, prosodic terms, this is made up of meter and rhyme, speech rhythm and register, assonance and the play of consonants. But another way to think of this tune is as staging those de- non-denotative slant aspects which are always part of language and in which poetry specialises. These aspects, of which parataxis and the emotional semiotic are just two examples, can hinder as much as help language users, bringing with them, again for example, ambiguity or accidental self-exposure. Such non denotative aspects of linguistic ways of going on are of course not tacit in any sense. The ambiguity, the joke, the discomfort are shared. they can be explained, and this is language we're talking about. But I suspect they might, if we wanted, point us towards another underexplored form of knowledge, not tacit but complicit knowledge. Social conventions are perhaps the most legible example of complicit knowledge seen in some of the literary forms of tacit knowledge. They may have been learnt and may be communicable, and so seem far from tacit. But they do operate in a particular pre-eventum way. They are, to use the theory phrase, always already in operation. But who has so positioned them? We, their users, both willing and unwilling, have. Nothing outside the agreement of such a convention's users can be used to verify it. And even challenge by some of its users can only be mounted in terms of its existing, in other words, in its own terms. This is the kind of knowledge that exists purely between its users, like the purest model of a language game. Something similar applies to the non-denotative aspects of language, the metrical tune in poetry and the Freudian slip alike. We are not innocent language users, but always already understand its user-ledness. That is to say it's impossible to use language without the personal deliberative aspects free will brings to speech and writing. The tune of poetry stages, but can only be read by using, this complicit knowledge, without which a purely denotative language would be a brute form, like the translation machines imagined in Les Murray's poem Employment for the Cast in Abeyance, that render out of sight, out of mind, as invisible lunatic.
0: Thank you. Now, before we we uh, uh, we have a discussion, I just want to lower the tone um, a little bit um, after that wonderful wonderful talk, um, because this talk this uh, discussion could be got under the Trades Description Act, because unfortunately we put business in the title. I'm not quite sure why we did that. tacit knowledge and business as well as science and, um, and, and literature and art. And I just want to pick out one thing, lob one thing into the discussion about economics and tacit knowledge because Hayek, a famous economist who was for a long time at the LSE, thought that tacit knowledge was crucial to the way we understand economics and markets. Indeed, he thought that socialism couldn't work precisely because the really key information can never be made explicit, can never be aggregated, and can never be codified. And therefore, government can never have the statistics necessary to make uh, the decisions it needs. And of course, he thought that that information could only be uh, made use of via the price mechanism. And the price mechanism worked because it reflected the innumerable decisions of many, many individuals, each of them acting on the basis of their own tacit knowledge their own context dependent uh, knowledge. And this idea, I think, is, is still very relevant to lots of debates in, in, in current issues to do with markets. When rating agencies try to make explicit all the risks that relate to a whole nation, which, let's face it, is a lot of tacit knowledge as well as explicit knowledge about how the nation works, its, its politics, its interaction, and so on, they try to relate, make it all, uh, aggregate it all, make it explicit in the form of one. Uh, ultimately one number a a double B rating or a triple B rating or whatever and similarly value at risk models so I just throw into the discussion because it may want to come up in in questions as well that this is a very live issue for economics as well whether the key knowledge is something that can be made explicit on data feeds by by rating agencies by value at risk models or whether whether the key information is actually something you can only understand in decentralised contextual environments but Harry, could I invite you perhaps to react to some of the things you've heard from Roger and Fiona? Yeah, I
1: I'll, keep, I, I wanna, I'll stick to just one thing, and it's just another one of these things that I that sometimes confuses the notion of tacit knowledge and I think needs sorting out. And I wasn't quite sure if wh- whether this confusion came up in Fiona's talk or not, but I think it can also be deconfused by taking an example from Roger's talk, and that is. Uh, the explicit is usually thought to be something to do with language whereas actually language is totally laden with tacit knowledge so uh, one of the concepts that I've been developing uh, is the notion of, of what I call interactional expertise uh, and interactional expertise uh, it came out of my I said I, I've spent decades with this group of gravitational wave physicists. And interactional expertise is what I consider I gained from spending decades with the gravitational wave physicists. And what it is, is an ability to talk about gravitational wave physics after the manner of an expert, even though I've never actually done any gravitational wave physics, never actually written any papers in gravitational wave physics, never done any calculations in gravitational wave physics and never set a soldering iron to the $250 million dollar laser interferometer they use for gravitational wave physics. Just from hanging around with these guys in the coffee bars and in, over lunch and so on and so on, I learned to talk like a gravitational wave physicist and I actually tested my ability to talk like a gravitational wave physicist by undergoing what we call an imitation game, which is like a Turing test, where I pretended to be a gravitational wave physicist, another gravitational wave physicist asked me technical questions, and a third gravitational wave physicist also gave answers to those questions, and then the dialogues were sent to nine other gravitational wave physicists, and they were asked, which one's Harry Collins, and which one is the genuine gravitational wave physicist? And they all knew me, and they knew I was taking part in the imitation game. And the results came back that seven said they couldn't tell who was who, and two said that I was the genuine physicist. <laughs> <not Harry Potter. laughs> and that was actually written up in Nature under the heading sociologists, fools, physicists.
4: <laughs> okay.
1: uh, Nature, of course, decided to compare it with the SoCal hoax, which it wasn't at all, because I was actually showing that I had genuine knowledge, not fake knowledge. Okay, now, but the point is that my knowledge was entirely, which I picked up with all this talk, was tacit. And so, what we must never do, I think, is start thinking that because something is spoken, therefore it's explicit. It's a bit odd because it's, it sounds like it's explicit if it's spoken, but it's not. I mean, most of what you get through talking is more tacit knowledge. And, uh, you know, when Roger was showing the surgeon saying, put your finger in there and you'll go, you know, that's an example of people learning stuff through tassel knowledge. An interesting research project or philosophical project is to work out exactly how all this... See, I have a lot of practical knowledge about gravitational wave physics now. Those questions were to do with making technical judgments. I could make technical judgments about gravitational wave physics. I could sit on a committee and make the right kind of decisions about where gravitational wave physics should go. As a result of this, it? I've got practical knowledge, but only through talking. And, and do you think that that would have, if you'd chosen to,
3: to study surgeons rather than gravitational wave physicists, whether you would have done
1: got to the same point? Done know. Sorry. it depends how much talking <coughs> they do. The point the of I about don't the gravitational much actually yes. Yeah, yeah. So you, it may not. You know, sometimes it's only it only has to be a thought experiment. And it ha- I have to say, if the surgeons did a lot of talking, the answer would be yes. But if, as it happens, that they just sit there and grunt, then the answer would probably be no. I wouldn't. Well,
3: you you should know. Should stand there and grunt. I say. Yeah.
0: <laughs> but this, I think, comes to a central paradox, which, which I think you mentioned Fiona, that, that if ultimately the sort of Wittgensteinian rules of the game or rules of language are the ultimate sort of paradigmatic, well, tacit a practice, not just a practice, language. Practice. Yes. Yeah. But it, ultimately, it has to be triangulated, as you say. It has to be shared. So yes. it's tacit but shared at the same time. I mean, and I That's guess, what's. Yeah,
6: sorry. I guess I wonder what's left after because there is so much that it can be in fact explained or conveyed one way or another not only by language by example and so on aren't you left with something which is about having the experience of doing isn't that what, what is what we're circling around the experiential rather than the practice you know a skill is made up of experience and the practice sort of roughly correlated to but not perfectly correlated with the outward and the inner and the outer world, the world in which you do, and the inner world in which you have a absolutely non transferable experience of doing. Well, so And it's that experiential kind of residue that it seems to me we're circling around. I don't
1: know, I, I'm getting a bit confused, but, I mean, the notion that I have is that tacit knowledge is acquired and gained <coughs> from, from, by mixing and having social interaction with... The say, say you want to get the tacit knowledge of gravitational wave physics a community of experts. You go and you hang around with them, and you spend time with them. Uh, you look at stuff. Uh, if you if you want to learn surgery, of course you do stuff as well. But you you said everything can be explained by demonstration. But that's tacit knowledge that's being transferred by demonstration. It's not being articulated. The kind of question to to know whether it's. Explicit or not, you have to ask yourself this kind of question. Does this give me a formula from which I can build an algorithm which would enable a computer to do this?
2: Or mm-hmm. something
1: like that. Mm. Okay? Or does this give me something I can write down to send to somebody and put them to post to send to somebody in a distant place who then as a consequence of reading this will now be able to do the thing? Very important in the world of business. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Because in the world of business, people take over whole firms or buy each other people's uh, uh, employees because they know there's no other way to get the tacit knowledge.
3: If things are, if things are really difficult to put into words uh, and you're learning mm-hmm. only the words that they have been able to put things into, then surely, haven't you got a problem? If You can, you can watch people playing tennis for ages, but it doesn't mean that you're going to be able to, to communicate with them about the things that they know and you don't, whereas all they can say is, well I really, I don't know you, you can imagine that there would be limitations, wouldn't they? So how does, how does that work? What about those things that, because there's a block isn't there between the things that you know inside the things that you represent in language in some form, and therefore the interactional
1: expertise that somebody else from the outside can, can acquire. It's, it's the word represent which I think is taking this role taking this in the wrong place, you can use language to convey practical understanding, but you're not representing the practical understanding. You know, it, it includes all those grunts, mm. and mm-hmm. those, you know, a bit like this sort of thing. Mm. You know, all that it's stuff, to which is done. not... And we tend to think of language as being this thing that sort of formally represents things, mm-hmm. but it does much more. Um, for for one, one, one... Here's another example from gravitational wave physics. I spend a, a day at a conference... Listening very carefully to all the papers given at the day of this conference, the word Joe Weber, that sound, was never uttered. What did that mean? It meant that the pioneer of gravitational wave physics, Joe Weber, had finally lost all his credibility. Now, that was conveyed in the silence, because his name was never spoken during that first day, conveyed by language, but without anybody ever saying, Joe Weber has lost his credibility. But ever, anybody there knew it as a result of not hearing his name so language can do things in these funny ways
0: Okay, well let's open up to questions now and the way we'll do this is we'll take three questions together um, and there's a roving mic coming round and if you could please introduce yourself, say who you are and ask a a question we'd be very grateful
4: Um, Dr Keith Postler um, Department of Physics Uh, uh, well and also um, Statistics Um, I would like to ask about um, whether or why um, collective knowledge, um, if I understood it correctly, could not be represented or interpreted um, because that's exactly what anthropologists do. Um, they can verbalize it. They can put it down. Um, and even though it may be a representation that could be idiosyncratic to a particular anthropologist there are many anthropologists then that study a culture in order to try and um, capture its totality so that I have difficulty understanding um, why collective um, um, representations um, pose a problem for being um, tacit and I can also say that um, I happen to do a, a study um, where um, I looked at a, a group of which I had t- no total, uh, total ignorance of them and came up with a, um, a six point model and I could um, in, in fact um, put it into an algorithm even though I didn't push it um, that far because that wasn't really the point.
0: Thank
2: you very much, and just the lady just behind. Thank you. Anne Murcott, I'm a sociologist, and I'm at Soas at the moment. Um, Harriet, could I pick you up on your collective knowledge? Because you used the example of language, and you said, well, I don't know what the rules are. And then you said, well, if we have great difficulty predicting the direction it will go. But uh, you may not know what the rules are, and we can recognise when it changes... And one way of characterising the manner in which it changes is somebody hasn't known what the rules are and has broken it, and so those rules have no longer valid. So, for instance, nowadays people talk about bored of, and I'm a generation which said you can't say bored of that's as as I was taught. Common, uh, you have to say board by or board board um, board, you know, board by. <coughs> and so, would you not agree, though, that even though you couldn't, can't predict the direction, <coughs> excuse me, direction in which change might happen, you can nonetheless start to specify um, what needs to happen for language to change. So, for instance, people might break, knowingly or otherwise, what some regard as existing rules, and so they change.
0: Thank you. And finally,
5: a question in the back corner of the hand there. Um, Mira Hübner, um, organization and social psychology student. I have the question in a way that perhaps it's the problem that we try to separate too much tacit and explicit knowledge. Um, It reminds me a little bit about Saussure's approach of the signifier and the signified, and two pages of the same sheet. So, for example, um, your um, experience at the conference that some name was not mentioned. In a way, the name of the person was the explicit knowledge, and that the name was not mentioned. Is the tacit knowledge um, in between the people at the conference, and the same thing about um, anthropologists, which try, for example, by storytelling, find out the culture. Storytelling includes also both types: the tacit knowledge, which is in between the story, and the explicit um, way of using the language, and yeah, these things. So perhaps it's the problem that we try too much to separate.
0: Okay, great. So, three very interesting questions there. Why can collective knowledge not be represented as it is, for example, in anthropology? Uh, rules of language, surely we do know them because we know them when they change, I think was the essence of perhaps that question. And are we too obsessed anyway with the distinction between explicit and tacit knowledge? Yes, so, shall I? Uh, yeah, go well, on. Harry, you go
1: first. Well, I think the question about the anthropologist is a good one. Uh, and I've written quite a lot about uh, qualitative methodology in social <coughs> science and what I always say is that, that in fact I can provide a recipe for how you uh, learn the, or, or acquire I should say the, the understanding of some native group that you're studying incidentally Wittgenstein is a mm. common philosopher, common to all of us okay. but the mystery I have is how you get it across to the people who haven't been there and now you can ask yourself this question. Could you have a second generation of anthropologists who would know as much about the society that the first generation of anthropologists know merely from r- reading what the, second, what the ant- first generation of anthropologists have written about them? And the answer is, I think you agree, no. Because in fact you cannot get it down. And I often ask, my, when I, my actual practice in doing qualitative research is to take a tape recorder, record all my discussions and in my books I put lots of quotations from my discussions and I ask myself why am I putting these quotations down there since my claim is that I have now got so far into the society I'm studying that I am like one of those people myself and I can say what happens in that society by introspection why collect the quotations? The answer is I collect the quotations because it's the only way I can think of getting across what's going on. It's really a kind of novel writing activity. Okay, I use the quotations to get it across in some way that I don't really understand. Because it's a real conceptual difficulty about how you pass all that deep understanding you've got as a result of immersion <coughs> in a society to people who haven't been immersed in the society. If there wasn't that problem, <coughs> life
4: would be very easy indeed.
1: I think, receive,
4: I think you're missing the point. Um, anthro- if you, it's transferable, um, one can go to an anthropology seminar. People are prepared to go out into the field on the basis of what other anthropologists have done. Anthropologists do not have a problem that you have. <laughs>
1: <laughs> All right. Uh, now that we, we turn to language um, yeah I mean it's the thing about rules is you, is you can't say where things will go but you, yeah, you know when rules have been broken I mean I say I don't know how to form a good English sentence I could also say an English sentence I don't know how to form good and I know I'm breaking the rules but uh, I, don't, I, I don't really quite follow your point I mean let, my kids are sitting in the audience there one of them once insisted that in fact you do say could of that it could have <laughs> and I spent a long time trying to persuade them that wasn 't right, so maybe that that had changed and the other thing I remember this very distinctly when they came home from school telling using the word wicked in a completely new way you know yeah oh, that was a wicked shot I and mean, what on <laughs> earth are you talking about i don 't understand how you could how you can a predict let, 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 let 's think of um, Uh, What's his name? Uh, Clockwork Orange. Who wrote Clockwork Orange? Mm -hmm. Anthony Anthony Burgess's Clockwork Orange. invented a completely new form of language. Never caught on. We don't talk Anthony Burgessese, strangely enough. But we do pick up the term wicked. And maybe could have, according to you. How are we going to know which one's going to pick on, which one's going to be picked up and which one isn't? That seems to me the prerogative of the collective not any set of individuals. I mean, Anthony Burgess would have liked his language to have been picked up, but it just wasn't, or at least not for very long. And then the question from the back, how do you (coughs) separate out, uh, why separate all these things? Now, in practice, all this stuff is incredibly mixed up. You're right. Explicit knowledge, tacit knowledge, and the three kinds of tacit knowledge which I pull apart in my book. In practice, they're all used together. It's very hard work to pull them apart but I think if you're going to do more if you're going to make an analytic advance you have to pull apart what's going on in practice yes you're absolutely right everything's mixed up you
6: well I wanted to say something about the third question which is I found myself sort of slightly in sympathy with um, it, it's, I suppose my my working feeling about tacit knowledge is I paraphrase it to myself as no power and it seems to me that I probably conceive of the boundary between explicit and tacit knowledge somewhat further over so that tacit knowledge shrinks. And I I have some difficulty with the idea that explicit knowledge can only be what is boiled down to an algorithm because then what is languages? I mean, you know, learning a foreign language and so on. So to me it seems there are quite a lot of things that function as... Um, things that are memorisable and that aren't reducible, which is my paraphrase for explicit, and aren't reducible to algorithms. So for me, tacit becomes much closer to the having a feel for how to do. And I noticed that in the, in the dialogue about anthropology, there was a sense that a kind of nostalgia for the having the total immersion experience and it's that word experience. So it, for me, it feels as though the tacit is much more experiential and explicit is much more what can be shared, whether or not with language, so. But I'm no expert.
3: Well, I just want to pick up what you were saying. I think in the world of surgery, it's very interesting you talked about surgery, standing up and, and, and grunting, um, which is not fair, but nonetheless, <laughs> an, an awful lot of the Work of surgery, I think, is it's mediated. It's what you do with your hands and things, and and in a sense, rather like the language. To, you, you know, there are very clear equivalents of uh, not saying I should have went um, in terms of what you do with your hands, uh, because there are there are wrong ways of doing things that are pretty clear. There are many right ways of doing things, um, and people are always testing out different. Um, variations of this language of touch of this language of working together collaboratively uh, around a given which is a human body but different ways of of manipulating it and so in a sense it's a kind of language, it's a physical language that that has many of those same characteristics where some things seem completely unacceptable now but in five years time or ten years time they've become completely absorbed into the mainstream and the language has moved on, the language of, of physicality has moved on so I think it's it's a, it's a sort of evolving thing, um, where where the, the, the lines between spoken and unspoken language are very very blurry. I think we've got time for just a couple
0: more questions. Anyone? You can wait, wait for the mic. In relation to the talk you've just given, how would you explain prejudice in terms of tacit, explicit and complicit knowledge? Prejudice. Prejudice. Yes. And uh, one last question. Okay. How do we explain prejudice in terms of tacit, explicit? Well, it's speech. such a great
6: question, isn't it? <laughs> um, here come the categories scattering before me Um, well it seems to me that prejudice is conveyed by people learn by imitation people learn to be prejudiced by imitation and they learn by um, repetition of and internalising ideas so it's pretty much like any other way of going on I don't think it's a group mind thing I think it's um, I'm sure there's some tacit knowledge but I think it's an explicit I want to say activity
2: not knowledge
0: Great. Well, I hope you will all join me in a second in thanking uh, Roger Ebone, Fiona Sampson, and Harry Collins. But before you do, I just want to remind you that there's a reception outside, which we'd be delighted you join us, and uh, book signing. And there is then a poetry reading by Fiona Sampson, if you can get in, where I hope she will do some reading the, on the inarticulate. Thank you very much for coming.